Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. Remember, you can find us on Twitter at MatchpointCan. We are on Instagram as well, Matchpoint Canada. We are the official podcast of Tennis Canada and members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And Mike, after a really fantastic conversation that we had last week, getting so many wide-ranging details on his training, his practice with Canadian Milos Raonic, this week, uh, very fortunate to get another terrific guest, one of the foremost coaches in the sport and one of the best commentators in the game as well, uh, Patrick Moradoglu. Yeah, I feel like we're spoiled because we've had some really awesome guests these past couple of weeks, uh, taking things sort of to another level. So uh, good luck to us to keep this going, I guess. But uh, Patrick Moradoglu, definitely someone who wears a whole lot of different hats in the tennis world. And someone who, you know, I used to think of him really as, as Serena's coach, of course. We made that association, and that's what he was, you know, mainly uh, recognized and, and known for, and, and how he helped her, obviously, recapture uh, some of her best tennis and, and move forward together and, and, and win so many slams. But he's done so much more for the sport, and I've got this newfound sense of appreciation and respect for Patrick for what he's doing during this time. He's not uh, just sitting around resting on his laurels, which – Nobody would, you know, critique him for doing, um, but he's trying to take tennis to a, a new level, a new place, and engage new, younger um, fans to the sport who otherwise maybe would be enticed by, by other big sports. And I think what he's doing, despite the fact a lot of people initially were kind of hesitant with um, some of the changes with his uh, UTS event, uh, it's re been really remarkable, and, and I'm a convert. Not that I'd want to see tennis, you know, mainstream tennis go this way, but I'm converted to definitely having a, a sort of a side stream of the sport that explores new possibilities like this one. Yeah, yeah, I really appreciate his his innovation. And from having the opportunity uh, to speak with Patrick Moradoglu uh, last summer at Rogers Cup, had his chance to chat with him there. And one thing you'll notice that I, I think comes across in the interview as well is he is really passionate about tennis. Um, it, it is, of course, his life's work. And I think he's just exploring a new avenue because he wants the the game to be strong, um, you know, when some of the superstars leave and, and is looking looking for certain innovation uh, to make it strong and get a new fan base because it is going to be the younger audience that, that holds this sport high and uh, continues its global interest. But uh, without further ado, uh, let's listen to our interview with Patrick Moradoglu. Our guest today is not only one of the premier commentators in our sport, but he's also one of the very best coaches. He founded his Tennis Academy in France in 1996, and he's worked alongside Serena Williams, helping her to 10 additional Grand Slam titles. He's also coached Marcos Bagdadis, Anastasia Pavlichenkova, Grigor Dimitrov, Jeremy Shardy, and many more. And he's also had under his academy, Stefano Tsitsipas and Coco Goff. Uh, pleased to welcome on Matchpoint Canada, Patrick Moratoglu. Thanks so much for being with us, Patrick. Thank you for the invitation. Patrick, with, with so little downtime in a normal tennis season, it would be totally understandable for people to want to take a break right now. And yet here you are starting your own ambitious tennis tour. Can you take us through the, the creation of the Ultimate Tennis Showdown? Where did you get the idea? And uh, how are you uh, pleased with how things are going up to this point? Well, uh, tennis is my passion, my life, and uh, my industry. So, I'm, of course, uh, I care a lot about tennis. Um, and I realized a few years ago that uh, tennis was not in a, in a great space. It looks great. Everything looks great. But if you, if you dig a little bit, you realize that there are reasons to worry for the future of tennis, not for the present, but for the future. Uh, the average age of the fan is 61 years old. Uh, it was 51 years old 10 years ago, and so it's going to be probably 71 in, in 10 years. Uh, and for a reason that is quite obvious, um, the tennis fans are very loyal to tennis because this sport is incredible and it's very uh, addictive. Uh, but it's extremely difficult to recruit new fans and young fans for tennis uh, for several reasons. But I would say that the main reason is that uh, the format of tennis is very old. Uh, I'm sorry to say it, but old-fashioned, even though I love it the way it is, and all the tennis fans love it the way it is. But it's very old, very slow, very complicated, 
uh, we're used to it, so we don't find it complicated, but it is complicated. Uh, very slow. Uh, I also uh, had my team work on on how much time uh, during a match the ball is in play compared to the time when the ball is not in play and it's a bit uh, a bit scary. Uh, when you watch a tennis match, the ball is in play between 5 and 20% of the time. So that means that between 95 and 80% of the time, you watch people doing their routines. Uh, and again, I'm okay with that, but a young, young non-tennis fan would never sit down for three hours to look at guys doing their routines. This is not going to happen, and that's why we're not recruiting new fans. Um, also, we have to realize that the, the prime of tennis was in the 80s, 70s and 80s. At that time, there was no competition. There was very few sports. There was no social medias, no Netflix, uh, not all those sports, no video games, no esports. So that was easy. Uh, but now everything is there. The, the, the way people consume videos has completely cha changed. Uh, we, all, we all know that the attention span is, is extremely short. Uh, so the format of tennis doesn't give any of those. So again, to keep the, the, the core fans, it's not a problem. So that's why I don't think we should change tennis. But I think that if we want to recruit new fans, and we, we need to, uh, we have to propose a different format. And that's the whole idea about UTS. Uh, and I know, of course, some, some uh, traditional uh, tennis fans are completely against it because they feel, oh, this guy wants to change our sport. I don't want to change our sport. I love tennis the way it is. But uh, I think that if we keep doing the same thing, we're going to die. So we need to also think out of the box and propose a different product. So, and I, I think those two leagues can completely work together next to each other. Uh, one with the, the goal to satisfy the core fans and the other one with the goal to recruit new ones. That's very forward thinking and I like the way you explain it. And, and it's true for those of us who are in the sport and grew up with the sport, it's totally normal that tennis is this way. But uh, as someone who teaches high school students and coaches high school students and Ben coaches as well, it's a totally different generation that's coming along now. So. Uh, absolutely credit to you for coming up with some new ways to, like you said, not replace what tennis is, but to kind of go along with it. For those who aren't familiar with some of the uh, the fun changes, the new and exciting rules that you have in UTS, can you explain maybe two or three of the biggest differences and ways that you think that's speeding up and, and attracting new fans to the game? So the first rule that is really different is uh, the fact that the match lasts only one hour. Uh, whatever happens uh, I mean in, in tennis you 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 never know when you start because it depends on the previous matches who are never you have no idea about how long they're going to be and you never know when you finish because the score decides how long the match is in UTS the clock decides when the match is over like in basketball or in football or all those sports now, that's a major difference that means also that the players they have to manage the time in tennis, in time doesn't matter, but in UTS, time matters a lot. And what you do at this moment of the match has an importance. So that's that's a big difference. Um, I changed the scoring, which I think is a big problem for the non-fans because when you win one point and you have 15, uh, and then you 40-15 and you win one point and then you have one, it's extremely complicated. And we don't have time today to explain complicated things. If you want to get new fans, it has to be simple. So. The scoring is different. It's quarters. Uh, it's a, a tie-break format, but it's a quarter. It's it's a four times ten minutes quarters, and the one who has the most points at the end of the quarter wins. Um, so that's two big differences, I guess. And the third one is the use of the cards. Um, so and that's that's interesting for several reasons. And one of the reasons is that we don't want something that is flat. We want suspense because I think. People watch sport to feel emotions, and we have to give them emotions. And to give them emotions, it has to be, uh, you have to have some kind of suspense. And with the cards, you can be down and suddenly 30 seconds later be up, because with the cards, you can get extra points. Uh, and you surprise also by using a card. So you wake up the, the, uh, the, the people who are watching, you wake them up. 
in, in, in classical tennis, you can spend 20 minutes with nothing happening and people switch to another channel or they do, go do something else. And maybe they come back at the end of the set if you're lucky because this is the prime time. So all these things have the goal to maintain uh, uh, the, the, the people under pressure the whole match. Uh, and that's what the players are saying. There is no downtime. It's, it's a prime time from the first to the last point. Of course, there are highest prime times, but you can't afford to lose concentration for a few, for a minute because you're, you can be done. So that's, uh, that's the goal, to have, um, uh, um, yeah, to have a match that is short in time, but very intense. Um, also, we have 15 seconds between the points rather than 25. And that's a huge difference, huge difference, because you play many more points during this, this hour than in, in regular tennis. So you almost play two sets, the equivalent of two sets, in, in, in an hour. Of time uh, and it's very dynamic very dynamic a lot of suspense a lot of things happening on the court that's what we wanted I, I have to say I, I'm really fascinated by the change in the scoring system and as someone who coaches tennis myself I, I can only tell you the number of times I have kids asking me trying to understand how does scoring work in tennis why when I have three points I have 40 why is 40 40 called deuce just all these little things that uh, I, I think for people who haven't watched the sport, it, it's so sort of convoluted and hard, hard to understand. It's easy for us because we've been around the game, uh, but you're right. It's something that I think needs to, to change to attract the new viewer and, and attract a new audience. I'm curious because I think anytime we do see change to, to sports that we love, there's always hesitancy. People don't like change initially. And I got the sense from, from social media and Twitter, uh, when you first launched the Ultimate Tennis Showdown, and people were reading the scoring. They were very uh, hesitant to, to accept this idea. But, but now that we've actually physically seen the matches, we've seen the players play, what's been the response so far? I, I guess, firstly, from the players who, who get to compete in this new format and uh, from media and, and fans alike. Yeah, you're totally right. Uh, people hate change in general. And even more in the sports that are very conservative, like tennis or golf or those sports. Uh, if you want to change anything, it's like you take something big away from people. Uh, but that's why I'm saying I don't want to change. I just want to propose something else. Right. It's an addition. It's an addition. Um, so the response is great. Uh, first, uh, the player's response is, is really amazing. They love it. They're, they realize that it's extremely intense because if you think about it, they never take the 15 seconds because they serve every time uh, five seconds, let's say average before before the end so they, they basically have 10 seconds to recover between points which is extremely short so it's a big cardio session which is very interesting also because they have to take major decisions all the time remember the cards see the cards of the opponent look at the time they have to manage a lot of things they're not used to managing with being like probably with, with their, um, their cardio really high. And, uh, and it's, we all know that it's very difficult to take good decisions when the cardio is high. So that, that's, a, that's a good effort for them. Uh, they really like it. I think it just highlights different qualities than, than classical tennis, which has become a very physical sport. And if you look at the top three players in the world, they're the three more, the most physical ones, Rafa, Novak, and Dominic Thiem. Uh, they're clearly the three best physical players. Uh, which is good, but I think tennis. One of the, the one of the things that is great with tennis is that you need so many different qualities to be a top player. Uh, you need to be strategic. You have the technical side is very important. Um, te the physical is one thing, but it's not everything. So I think in UTS it highlights also different qualities. Um, of course, this, if you serve well, it's a big advantage. I think especially with a card that you get three points if you hit a winner, if you hit an ace, you can go come back fast score-wise. But it's very strategic also. It's very, very strategic. You can put pressure and as people are under stress and I mean, sometimes it's difficult for them to recover because of the time they have between the points. If you put them under pressure, they can take bad decisions. So it's really very mental and very tactical more, even more, I think, than, than classical tennis, which is something I like. But the players have loved it. 
uh, they've said it actually publicly, all of them. Uh, of course, you know how it is. When they, the more they win, the more they like it. The, the more they lose, <laughs> the, less, the less they like it. But yeah. they like it. And I know, I know it also because a lot of players have reached out to me to participate. Uh, we have actually a long list of players who would like to be in UTS2, which is, will be right after U the end of UTS1. Uh, and it says, uh, it says a lot about how much the players like it. And I think this is the most important. Even though I'm completely uh, uh, centered on the fans, because I want to create the best product for the new fans to, to, to become fans. Um, if the players don't enjoy, they're not going to make a good show and nobody's going to like it. So that was... The, the first hurdle was to make sure that the players would love it. And this one is, uh, has worked really, really well. And actually, they, they, most of them ask if they could play the second event, which will take place for four more weekends right after the first one. So that's great. Now, uh, yeah, Twitter, yeah, of course. But what I don't like is, I mean, I'm, I, people are, of course, free to have their own opinion. I, I never like so much people who judge before, before seeing. For sure. This is a big mistake and nobody should do that. And I regret that the Davis Cup has been, the new format has been killed before it even took place, uh, which I think is not acceptable. Mm -hmm. uh, you should respect people who are trying to do things. And the best way to respect is to say, okay, maybe it doesn't look good, but I'm going to look and after I'm going to give my opinion. But that's how the world is, so I'm not going to change it. But well, uh, yeah, I think it's, basically it's, it's very positive. Well, that's that's good on you as well for for the courageousness to to try something new, especially I think in a sport uh, like tennis, which is so sort of rooted and obsessed with its traditions, but uh, just giving some some new type of variety. And one aspect that I love about it uh, from from having watched just a bit is in the short and condensed format, every single point matters. We have different ebbs and flows when I think when you watch a full tennis match and you see like a 4-1-40 love score is not a point that matters. But in this sort of condensed format, everything is, is so crucial. Um, I, I'm also curious, were you nervous, I guess, when you started hosting this event, uh, just, just in the sense of a global pandemic happening, just being able to manage around that? Was, was that a concern? Not, I mean, to be honest, not really, because uh, first of all, we are in a part of the world where, I mean, the situation is quite good compared to a lot of other places. Uh, we had reached the peak quite long time before, and we were really, really uh, going down, and, and we were extremely respectful of all the rules. I reached out to the government to have a, an official authorization. And I asked to have also all the rules that we needed to, to follow. And everybody's been uh, extremely, uh, uh, serious about it uh, we've been we've been testing uh, all the players and all the teams uh, before every weekend uh, a lot of stupid things that are said on, on again on social media because people talk without being informed uh, so it ends up being completely stupid like the thing with Dominic team was completely ridiculous yes he's been in contact with those guys but uh, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, I'm talking about the the Adria tour. He was in yes. contact with the, with the people who were infected. He could have been infected, but when he played the first weekend, we knew nothing about it. So, we he's, he's been tested and he was negative, and we don't didn't know anything. And then the scandal happened after. But when the scandal happened, he was back home, mm -hmm. and then he got tested every day. <laughs> and and when he came back to to uh, to the UTS. 15 days had passed and nine tests. So what's the problem with that? You know, so, uh, so as, I, as I was just saying, uh, we've been extremely respectful of all the rules and I think it was quite obvious. No crowd, uh, distance between every spectator. We were, who were not spectators, actually, they were the teams of the, of the players. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody tested, uh, no, uh, no hugs, no hand shaking, you know, so... I think, of course, the ball boys were wearing gloves. They were wearing masks. The, the, both players had different uh, tennis balls, so they were not sharing them. I, I think, uh, and, and many other things that I, I'm not going to, the list is too long, but I don't think we took any risk. You know, if you look at how people live every day around us, uh, I think there are a million more risks around us than what we've done. So I was not nervous for that. We became nervous when everybody went crazy after what happened at the Adria Tour. Uh, 
because then you read things that don't really make sense and you think, well, people are getting a bit crazy. Uh, I mean, I understand that people were angry with what happened uh, because when you are in sport and you're a star and you have to show a good example uh, and this I completely understand and I think we've done it. Uh, but look how people live. You know, you're in the US, oh, you're not in the US, you're in Canada. I don't know how, where it is, how it is in Canada, but in, in Europe, people are living almost normal now. Uh, people go to the restaurants, the restaurants are full. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we, we, live, we live a normal life. So, but we would wanted to make sure that this tournament would be really, really uh, respecting 10 times more than what was supposed to, we were supposed to respect. So everybody would feel secure. And actually the players told me, when we come to the academy to play the matches on the weekends, we feel super secure. So, just one more question, Patrick, about UTS before we do ask you a couple others about some of the exciting players that our listeners are interested in that you work closely with. But uh, Felix Ogialiassim was originally scheduled, and as a Canadian tennis podcast, we were excited to hear that. Unfortunately, uh, injury precautions took him out ahead of time. Uh, you said there's going to be future installments of UTS. Are there any other Canadians, um, given that it's an exciting time for the sport here in our country? any Canadians that you've spoken with or would like to see involved in uh, future editions? Yeah, of course, there are a lot of, I mean, you're lucky to have a lot of great future top players in Canada. So definitely, yes, but for the moment, the travel restrictions are really a big hurdle. So uh, Felix could play because he's living, as you might know, next to us. Uh, so physically, he was around. Uh, the other Canadians are in Canada or in the US and for the moment, it's not possible for them to come come down to, to Europe and, and south of France. But I would love to have others. I love, uh, I mean, I love all the Canadian players. They're all great, uh, including uh, including uh, Bianca, who's an amazing player too. Uh, and I hope to to have soon uh, also a women women event at UTS. We just didn't have time to do both and. Uh, as it was very, I mean, actually, you asked me before, Ben, if I was nervous with COVID-19, I explained to you why I was not. Mm -hmm. But I was very nervous about the, the product that we would deliver because, I mean, this was, first of all, the first time in our lives that we were doing like a, a, a production, a high-level production. I'm talking about a, a TV production. And I mean, doing an event like this is, is huge and, and that's not our main job. Our main job is to train uh, players. So we were very nervous with that. And I thought if we, we try to, to do men and women, we, we double the chances to, to fail. So it's, so, it's, it's such a huge uh, organization and, and risk taking. I want to focus on men first, but I definitely want to add women in the future. And I hope to have, of course, uh, the Canadians, which are again, great players and I'm sure some of them will be in the, the, the top rankings in the future. Oh, we love hearing that. And uh, as UTS is happening and obviously taking up a lot of your time, uh, how much time do you have to start thinking about what's coming next with the return of the ATP, WTA, and, and the Grand Slams? And uh, all of our listeners are very curious, how is Serena Williams doing these days and, and how are her preparations coming along? I, I still have time to think about, of course, Serena's practice and uh, and making sure that she'll be ready for the next challenges, which I hope will be uh, the U.S. Open and Rangaros. Uh, actually, I I was quite positive about it, but the, when I see how things are going, I start to doubt uh, about this possibility to host those events because the situation in the U.S. is just getting worse and worse. Uh, I think from what I heard that when you come from Europe, you have to, to be 14 days in quarantine, which is okay for me, but for the players, how can they participate in an event if they have to stay in a hotel room for 14 days before a Grand Slam? Sounds difficult. And the situation gets, again, worse and worse in terms of number of cases of COVID-19 in the US. And I think New York is quite bad. Uh, I don't know if the governor will end up uh, authorizing this event. I would be surprised if he does. And even though he does, I think that Europe will say, if you come back from the US, you have to be in quarantine. So what's gonna happen? We're supposed to play in Madrid and Rome right after the US Open. If you're in quarantine, how do you play? 
And then you have to play Roland Garros, being in a room for the last four, 14 days. I mean, all this sounds uh, a bit uh, impossible. Um, uh, I think it was quite ambitious, <laughs> ambitious from the ATP and WTA to do this schedule that is so packed, uh, where there is this quarantine problem. Because when the schedule is packed, if there is quarantine that takes place in the middle of that, it, it screws the whole thing. So I hope it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen, but I think it's, the more time passes, the more it looks difficult. Uh, and it, I think players might have to choose between the US Open and Rangaros, I, I, especially the European ones. Maybe the Americans know, even though I think it's the same problem, but we'll see. I mean, Serena's uh, getting ready. She's uh, she's extremely motivated. Uh, she 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 came back to tennis only to beat that record. Uh, that was her main goal because she was 37 years old. She just became a mother, has an incredible career, uh, but something was missing uh, to beat the record of all times. And uh, she thought because she's everything but a quitter. I'm not ready to give up uh, tennis uh, until I reach that goal. So she decided to do an incredible effort to come back to a, to a good level, physical, both physically, mentally, because I think beca becoming a mother changes a lot of things in a woman. Uh, and you need to adapt to a completely new situation when you become mother and you have the responsibility of a child, of your child. I, I mean, honestly, I've never seen her work that hard uh, to come back in shape. So... She's not going to give up, give up now. She really feels she has it in her racket. So whatever time it takes, she's ready. She's getting ready. And, and, and she wants to win a few more Grand Slams. Well, and we, we should note she's, she's been so close, really, making, what, four, four of the last eight Grand Slam finals. Uh, and you feel like she's always just been, been one match away. Uh, you talk about overcoming some of those physical hurdles and in terms of coming back from motherhood, having a child, and then getting back in peak physical condition to compete at the highest level in tennis. Do you think maybe winning that last match, that final, is that more of the mental hurdle right now? Because she, she is that close and, and that record is, is so close, but so far at the same time. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think it is mental. Uh, you can't, I mean, it's difficult to say that it's not mental when you reach four Grand Slam finals and you lose all four. Right. Uh, I think she's played a great tennis, uh, especially uh, maybe the last two, three, coming, reaching the final with, with great level of tennis. And, and if, if I am honest, and I am honest, when you look at the level in final, we're quite far from the level she was able to play in the previous matches. So... But you have to understand, I think it's important for the people to understand, I'm sure you do, but uh, that playing one match for the history is, the, is probably the, the biggest mental challenge that anyone can have to deal with in his life. Mm -hmm. uh, when you play for history, one match for history. It's just crazy if you think about it. And, uh, and yeah, so she, she's used to dealing with a lot of pressure because when you're number one in the world, uh, in a way, you're not allowed to lose, to, to lose, to lose because uh, all the eyes are on you. And whenever you lose a match, everybody starts to say, "What's the problem?" So, and that's kind of the story of a life. So she's 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 used to deal with a lot of pressure, but this one is is going to the next level. So she just uh, we just need to find a solution for that. Uh, for the moment, it doesn't work, but uh, we haven't tried everything and. There is a solution. We just have to find it because I think now she's back. I mean, it was more difficult for the first ones that she's lost, the first finals, because I think that she was not at her best yet. So when there is a lot of pressure, much more than usual, and you don't feel completely confident with your tennis or your physical, uh, it's, it's more difficult to, to deal with that pressure. But now she starts to be really close to her physical level that she used to have. So she uh it becomes more mental now before we uh wrap up with you patrick there are a couple other players that you've worked closely with that are super exciting uh plenty of personality as it seems like all of your players usually have and that's stefano Pass, who when i looked this morning is leading the uh, uts right now leaderboard in terms of points and uh and that's great obviously to, to have him in that spot 
and Coco Goff, who's just impressed us so much with her off-court um, uh, words lately in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement and just how she's responded to what's going on in the United States. I can't believe how young she is and, and she's able to speak like that with that maturity. Uh, what can you tell us about those two young players and how exciting it must be for you to, to work and develop with them? When I, when I look at a, at a young player, that's one of the things I really look at is the personality because I think there are a lot, a lot of great players, but the champions are different. They have a, a different mindset and it's, it's all about the personalities. Uh, and contrary to what they try to show that they're nice people, polite people, they are nice and polite, but they're incredible. And I'm just saying that they're not showing the other side that they are incredible competitors. They want to be the best. They want to beat everyone. Uh, they're, they're ferocious, really. The top guys and the top women, of course, also. Which is great because that's what we expect from a champion. Uh, so I look at the personality because... And I always told, tell this story about Novak uh, because he came to tennis uh, at a time when there were two guys that were winning absolutely everything. I'm talking about Rafa and Roger. And at that time, all the players, I mean, all the top tens were saying it's impossible to win a Grand Slam. And then this guy comes and says, I'm going to beat them. So I remember the press saying, who's that guy? Who does he think he is? He's so disrespectful. No, it's not disrespectful. He believes in himself so much. Uh, and he ended up doing it, like beating both of them, becoming number one in the world. It's all about the mindset. Uh, it's all about, uh, so they're different. And I would say, I, I have to say that both Coco and Stefanos I think are very different. Um, and Coco, uh, the way, as you just said, the way she has behaved also out of the court is so impressive that I think everybody realizes how much she's different, how much she's mature for, 15, for 16 years old, confident, uh, not scared to be herself, uh, which is, I think, a great sign also. Uh, and I remember seeing her at 10 years old coming to my academy to pass the tests uh, and be part of the program. And I remember having a one-on-one -on -one discussion in my office and I, I always push them, like, what do you want? Why do you think you can do it? She was so driven already. And she was believing so much in herself. I said, I remember saying to my team, I mean, this one is special. She's different. And now it's, well, I mean, now that everybody sees her and knows her, I mean, I think it's obvious that she's really different. Uh, and, I, and I have to say the same thing with, with Stefanos, who clearly uh, has his way of thinking uh, also out of the court, uh, which is something I really love because, again, is he dares being different and he dares being himself. Uh, and I think that's why human beings are interesting because everybody's different if they accept to showcase their, their, their real self, which a lot of players don't do in tennis. And I think it's a shame because it's not interesting to see clones. Uh, and they're not clones, but they're, they want to show only a part, the part that they think people want to see. Uh, and I love this quote that says, be yourself, everyone else is already taken. And I think those two players, Coco and Steph, they, they, uh, they empower this quote extremely well. And I think both of them have the mentality of the champion. They, they are incredibly driven and incredibly ambitious and they believe in themselves. And when you have those three assets, you can go a long way. Absolutely. Boy, we should show them this video of you speaking about them because uh, <laughs> we wouldn't want to see their coach talk so proudly of them. Uh, Patrick, thank you very much. Un grand merci pour nous joindre aujourd'hui. We're Canadian podcast, you know, a little bit of anglais et français. We're very impressed with your ambition and your drive to help bring tennis to uh, greater audiences. And we're looking forward to watching the rest of UTS and for you to continue your quest with Serena later this summer and the development of your other tennis talents that you work so closely with. So thank you so much and uh, à bientôt. Thank you very much et à très bientôt. There you have it, our interview with coach of Serena Williams, also the founder of a tennis academy and commentator Patrick Moradoglu. And look, he detailed it. I remember when he first launched the UTS and on Twitter, I don't know if backlash is the right word, but eyebrows certainly raised being like, why, why are you changing so many things? What is this crazy format? But 
never knock something until you try it. And if you've had an opportunity to, to watch UTS, it is kind of an exciting, fresh way to, to watch tennis. And even if it didn't work out, I mean, credit to him for, for trying. This is a guy that just clearly loves tennis. And you could tell throughout the interview, whether he was talking about UTS or his time with Serena or the exciting young players he's working with coming up. Uh, this is a, a guy that just, you know, lives, eats, breathes tennis all the time. And, uh, and who better than to try and, uh, you know, put some innovations into the sport like he's done. And ultimately, and, and as he said, this isn't to try and change entirely the way the sport is playing. This isn't threatening to the tennis establishment. This is trying some things to see, hey, what works, what doesn't work? How does it affect the overall product? And it's still tennis. And if anything, it's giving you more tennis, as he mentioned, because he's trying to cram as much into each hour-long match as possible with reduced time between points, with ways to speed it up, ways to make it more fan-friendly, even though there aren't fans there, but fans watching at home with the you know mandatory interviews during the match. So I think it's really cool how he's doing it. And he's absolutely right that the younger generation today, uh, kids today, teenagers today, their attention spans are definitely shorter than yours, than mine, than people of Patrick's generation as well. Uh, it's it's just very different out there. And if tennis doesn't adapt, if if all sports in some ways don't adapt, uh, you know, they could find themselves, um, you know, looking back, wondering why they lost, uh, you know, their fan base or why their fan base didn't didn't grow. And tennis is such a, an exciting sport for those of us who love it. And uh, even though I'm a bit of a traditionalist at heart, I'm open to try new things. And if not trying them right now in the middle of a, a three-month-long hiatus of professional tennis, then, then when else would you be able to attempt these things? Yeah, exactly. It's certainly perfect timing to instill a new format like this. And I think he makes it clear, too, he's not out to change tennis. He's just offering uh, sort of a fresh takes, some type of alternative. And uh, also being a traditionalist in a sense, I don't want to see a dramatic change in Grand Slam tennis. I, I don't think the men should eliminate best of five at Grand Slams. I like that aspect. I, I don't think we should overhaul completely the scoring system of tennis. But I, I do admit at times for casual fans or people who haven't really watched the sport before, they do find elements of it confusing. And uh, I'm always eager to tell people how, how great a sport it is. A couple of innovative features when you do watch that I do like, actually, uh, the lower camera angle on court um, actually really is fascinating with the action for, for fans to kind of see the spin uh, of, of the ball, the pace, like really get a sense sort of at court level, like what these guys are doing and, and their ability on court is really impressive to see. And I it's, think it's kind of like if you're sitting up at the top of Arthur Ashe stadium versus if you're sitting, you know, court side. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So. And, it, and it makes a big difference. And I think also just the, the way the, the game has changed in terms of the speed that he's right. It is more physical and athletic. So tapping into more of the conditioning endurance and endurance aspects of the sport uh, can make for a more interesting watch at times. Yeah, definitely. And uh, w one thing I do have to critique or, or, uh, or sort of argue against is I don't know if the average age of tennis fans is, what did he say? 61 years old. That seems awfully up there to me for an average, but I, I do agree that, uh, the, the age is probably a little bit higher than, than what it, it used to be, or that just in general, tennis probably has always had uh, maybe a more mature audience than, than other sports. But uh, no reason why, you know, we can't work on some ways to try and inject a little bit of youth into the game. And, and a whole other aspect is trying to uh, engage fans with these new personalities. And if you're having the, the players speak mid-match, sort of like you see in hockey or basketball with courtside or ice side, uh, interviews and chats and things like that or, or you know chats between periods or, or quarters of the game nothing wrong with that either to try and show what the players are thinking during those moments and the more access you can give to these players to fans the more they're going to get to know them the more you know an athlete the more you're going to want to support them or watch them cheer for them cheer against them whatever the case may be and tennis definitely needs to do a better job in in that respect yeah, and this is the era to really take advantage of that with social media and, and being able to package and, and showcase personalities. It, it's the perfect time for that. Very interesting uh, 
what he described in terms of meeting Coco Goff when she was just 10 years old and immediately taking note of her personality, her sort of will to win and just noticing uh, what kind of a special person this is from the get-go at such a young age that he's very interested in, in players and their personalities, not just their games, because there are so many great tennis players. There are so many great ones at the college levels, but what is going to make you truly stand out? And so obviously running an academy, he has a keen eye for that. And you look at his two prospects that, I mean, he's not coaching directly, but Stefano Tsitsipas, Coco Goff, I mean, what Goff is already accomplishing age 16 is like absolutely incredible and you know that's only touching on on court stuff we talked about the off court stuff she's um managed to to show over the past couple of months speaking out um being part of the black lives matter movement and being so articulate in that sense is incredible and then stefano Tsitsipas, of course is part of that next gen and one of these faces that we have to assume we're going to see winning grand slams in in three four years time these two are so marketable, right? Both these young players. I mean, CeCe Pass is only 21. It feels like he's been around a little bit longer. Uh, had that great run at the Rogers Cup two years ago where we all kind of realized, whoa, okay, this guy's going to be something big. And uh, I just love listening to Patrick because he kind of sounded like a proud dad when he was speaking about <laughs> Coco and, and Stefanos. And he was really gushing about uh, just not their on-court, but their off-court as well, which was really cool to see. Um, you know, yeah, Patrick, I think, in this interview just revealed a side of himself that uh, is, is very endearing and uh, kudos again to him for, for trying these new things at a time where you've got nothing to lose. And uh, I think the early returns are, are very positive with this uh, UTS uh, tournament that's going on right now. And will continue to go on. As he mentioned, there's a, a second installment planned. And uh, although Felix Ogialiasim uh, couldn't make the first one, maybe we'll see him in the second one, which would be cool to get some Canadian content in there for us, of course. Yeah, that would be great to follow. And of course, we touched on his player, Serena Williams, and, and that quest for number 24. Uh, that That is, uh, I figured he would answer this way, but it being more of a mental than physical hurdle for this at, at this point in this stage of her career, because she is so close and she's lost her last four Grand Slam finals. But I think it's so massive for the U.S. Open uh, coming up that she's committed to playing it. And, and that makes me get the sense that they absolutely want to follow through with this event. Say, say we miss out on a few of the men's top players, say Novak or Rafa don't come. Okay. Not ideal, but Serena there, she's, you know, maybe the most marketable star in the game up there in top four, top five. It was a very revealing conversation in terms of the, the mindset and the issues in those four finals since she's come back from uh, giving birth and, and Patrick basically saying that, you know, when you've got history on your shoulders in a match like that, it adds a whole different dynamic of pressure. And for someone like Serena, you, you have a hard time almost believing that because while she's been working with, with Murata Glue, they've made 16 out of 27 Grand Slam finals, which, which is just kind of absurd. Yeah. Um, but it clearly is something that she wants so badly um, that, that has affected her to some extent. I mean, let's also be realistic. That first year she was back, just getting to those finals was remarkable. For sure. um, but, uh, you know, she'll be turning 39 later this year, but uh, has the, the will to continue to compete, and her game is absolutely still ferocious. Might not be still what it used to be in terms of the movement and, and the mental side as well at times, but physically speaking her strengths are still very much her strengths and uh i mean who wouldn't put her in their top three to five at the open this year you know undoubtedly yeah yeah i think the irony in the conversation and talking about like can serena handle the pressure if i'm choosing one women's player through the course of history in terms of handling pressure who's the most mentally tough i'm picking serena williams every time uh, so I would not bet against her uh, to tie Margaret Court's record. We should talk about some other live tennis that, that we had, the Credit Bank One Invitational from Charleston, um, with 16 women playing in a team format, team kindness versus team peace. Of course, all the physical social distancing happening. We had a couple of Canadians there. I'll just point out that team kindness did uh, – Actually, it was, sorry, pardon me, Team Peace that did pick up the win it's over so Team Kindness. Team Kindness confused <laughs> with one another, you know? Right? They're pretty they close. Had team Peace versus Team, like, angst or something, you know? Just, uh... <laughs> exactly. Uh, but uh, we did see Gina Bouchard square off with Leila Annie Fernandez. First time they've 
they played a match together. Obviously, this this is not for points. It's not for ranking. Um, but I, I got the sense that both players were were taking this seriously. And the positive to take from this, Virginie Bouchard, I think, is is getting a solid win against, of course, a rising young star player. Uh, and a reminder that Jeannie Bouchard, when she does play her good tennis, it is in no way reflective of her current ranking. I was reading uh, my friend Ed McGrogan of Tennis.com, who's been on the podcast with us before, uh, and he watched the the Jeannie matches throughout the week, and he described it uh, that uh, who on the right day can still, you know, Jeannie Bouchard, who on the right day, sorry, can still rally with the best of them. And he also observed that uh, Jeannie was looking nothing like the 300 32nd ranked player on the tour and uh, I think those are some encouraging comments about our former Canadian number one who surely at least can get back into the top 150 of the game I I would say there's certainly the potential for the top 100 as well Um, and it's just shocking to me when you see that number next to her name in the rankings Um, seeing Jeannie and Layla go up against each other it's always a little bit awkward for me to see Canadians face off head-to-head uh, and, and I've got to say, I, I might have jinxed the result in that one, not that I'm cheering for one over the other, but I was asked on Twitter and, and Tom Tebbett was asked as well, who, uh, you know, we were sort of leaning to and we both went with, uh, with Leila Annie Fernandez, just given her fine play this year. And yeah. uh, of course, anytime I make any sort of prediction on Twitter, it absolutely goes the opposite direction. Um, but good for Jeannie to, to get that, that win and good for Leila Annie to be included in a tournament like this, which I think more than anything reveals that outside of Canada, she is now a known quantity. She's uh, garnering respect. And uh, that was also evidenced by a recent article in the uh, up-to-date issue of Tennis Magazine by our friend Blair Henley, who uh, featured Layla Annie in there as well. So she's no longer our Canadian secret. And uh, great to see her included in an event like this with mostly more veteran uh, players. Yeah, well, uh, we should note, I think, before COVID-19 hit, Leila Annie Fernandez was undoubtedly barreling towards the top 100, and I don't think there was anything that was going to stop her. And I think if we had played a full calendar year to this point, um, you know, trying to be cautiously optimistic I think she would be inside the top 75 if not potentially better you saw the tennis she was playing the the Acapulco final uh, the win over Belinda Bencic it was all really really coming together she had a win over Sloan Stevens as as well so she's already proving at this young teenage age that that she belongs she can handle the heavy hitters and she still has so much to develop within her game which is why I think she's maybe one of the more underrated prospects we have but as you point out now getting uh, some coverage in tennis magazine that the tour is taking notice and uh, once we return she'll she'll very quickly enter that top 100 and go beyond a couple nice performances just a note from other players jennifer brady she'd been playing good tennis at the front end of 2020 a couple top 10 wins i recall her making a run in brisbane she went four and oh this week like i don't know how much you read into results from what is an exhibition that is being taken seriously but they're in a sense like tune-up matches as well yeah, these players want to get ready for what's coming next when the tours resume, hopefully, if they resume in uh, in August. And so, yeah, I don't think we can put any stock into them, really. Um, although when you look at, say, Stefano Sissipas, who's at the top of the leaderboard for UTS, uh, well, he's obviously picking up where, where he left off. And, and with that talent, why, why wouldn't he? Dominic team also playing well. Um, who knows, maybe for someone for Jennifer Brady, this is a springboard to get back to the, the game on the professional level and continue. Um, advancements uh, that remains to be seen but one way or the other it's nice to see um, some tennis events happening that are being done properly that are being done with the right uh, types of distancing and uh, the right approach between the players I don't think Charleston had a uh, dance party on the last night of uh, of their event and uh, you know to transition from the women over to the men and in the next installment of who wants to be the village idiot we've got Sasha Zverev this week who, I mean, it's just mind-boggling how he was captured in this Instagram video. Uh, not that he was captured in it, but that he was there to begin with. Uh, you know, not even six or seven days into his supposed 14 days of self-quarantine that he promised after participating in Novak Djokovic's uh, ill-fated Adria Cup. Uh, and there he is partying with a whole bunch of other people in close proximity, uh, just looking like uh, an absolute tool. And uh, And, you know... <laughs> I don't even know what to say with this guy. 
but he definitely takes the cake this week uh, in terms of reckless behavior. Well, I'll say this. It, it never surprises me when a young person in, in their 20s engages in reckless behavior. That is never a surprise to me. Uh, it doesn't surprise me when I see people breaking the rules that we've been kind of given during this pandemic. Uh, we had fiascos in Toronto with Trinity Bellwoods uh, over a month ago. That doesn't surprise me. It surprises me that someone to uh, Sasha Zverev's fame would not have the basic foresight to understand that eyes are going to be on him. People know who he is. We're talking about a top 10 player uh, on the ATP circuit uh, competing in a global sport that he could think that he would get away with going out to a lively bar in this setting, clearly not quarantining, just days after issuing a message, clearly a PR written message saying, I, I deeply apologize for my participation in the Adria Tennis Tour. This was wrong. Um, I'm now beginning a period of quarantine. I like that. There has to be some sort of screw loose here. I, I don't know what he was thinking. Surely he would have known. Like somebody is going to see you. Somebody is going to film you. Um, yeah, yeah. So like, again, like, look at 21 years old. I made plenty of stupid decisions, but none of them were during a pandemic. Pandemic, and none of them were you know a month, a month and a half before I'm hoping to contend in a major tennis tournament where, you know, not only do I want to be healthy so that I can compete and be at my best, but I wouldn't want to unknowingly in, in fact, or put any of my peers, co-workers, fellow tennis players uh, at risk either. And so not only is he going to be judged by, you know, media and tennis fans, apparently he um, blocked one of his biggest supporters over the years. So it is nice to see that Zverev supporters can be critical of their guy when he does things that are, you know, not the, the, the most well thought out, but um, yeah, it's just, um, it's just, I'm at a loss for words. And, yeah. and what does he do to rectify this? Really, I don't think there's anything, because if he comes out with another apology, who's going <laughs> to buy it anyhow? Yeah, I, I had that thought. Does he issue an apology about this? Like a second apology related to this pandemic, is that going to make sense? Or is he basically going to lay very low for the next month or two until ATP tennis returns and hope people have either forgiven or forgotten? I mean, that is a possibility, but Nick Kyrgios was obviously the, the most vocal on this one in terms of surprise, uh, surprise. <laughs> often is going on social media and really, really ripping into him. And I think one thing that always irks and bothers Nick Kyrgios is when someone is completely disingenuous. I've heard him uh, criticize people who, who say one thing and then do the other. It seems to really bother him. And that's essentially what Sasha Zverev did. Uh, so that got under Nick Kyrgios' skin. And right now, I guess he's sort of the new tennis villain for the week, um, relieving Novak Djokovic of the title somewhat. It's really hard to gauge and get a sense of how this will affect reputations moving forward, though. Do we forgive the world number one player? Do we forgive Sasha Zverev? Because he is just a young 20s guy um, who clearly made more than one boneheaded mistake. So it's, it's hard to gauge how fans will react when they're back on court. And I wonder if at a certain uh, stage, as it gets closer to Washington, Cincinnati, uh, U.S. Open, does the employer, you know, in this case, the ATP in a sense, have the right to bar a player from participating because of their behavior leading up to the event? I mean, imagine if your employer or my employer saw us out partying before those sort of um, things were allowed here or, or after we had been hanging out with people who had uh, admitted to having COVID would your employer or mine allow us to come to the workplace if something like that surfaced? The answer would be a definite no. So um, I, I know it's a little bit early now, but as it gets closer, is that a possibility that even if you, um, you know, claim not to be symptomatic, um, could they say, sorry, you've, you've lost your privilege to play because of your reckless behavior? Yeah, I'd be curious if the ATP does have a conversation with him and uh, what he was thinking during this time. And we know they have a code of conduct for, for conduct on court. You would think maybe there's a code of conduct to adhere to off the court. And look, there will be a couple of months that, that do pass before we get to the city open in Washington. And presumably all players who are traveling to Washington to compete, they will get tested ahead of time. So uh, with those safety measures in place, he should 
likely be clear to play. I don't think we're going to see a suspension levy, but I wouldn't be surprised by some conversation from the tour. And I, I don't know how he can apologize out of this one. The best scenario for, for Sasha here might be to, to say just, nothing, honestly. Just don't say anything. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, and one last thing I guess we should get to is uh, we did have action in Britain, Battle of the Brits uh, from, from the best British players competing. I, I think probably the player everybody was most interested in seeing Andy Murray back playing some singles matches and and looking pretty strong though it's hard to kind of evaluate what he can piece together in terms of an additional portion of his career if he can extend his career for long but still nice to see him back on court Kyle Edmund competing and Dan Dan Evans one of the craftier players on the ATP inside the top 50 uh, winning the event. Dan Evans, who's up to 28 in the frozen ATP rankings, which when I saw that, I'm not going to lie, I did a bit of a double take. So living up to his ranking there. Um, And I just think first and foremost, what a cool event to have. And uh, it had been years, I want to say it was 2002 or 2005, when the Brits last held a sort of national tennis championship like that. But what a cool idea. And a lot of the players in the aftermath were saying, hey, maybe we should do this annually. And even when we can have spectators, what a what a neat event for people here in the UK to, to get behind. And I think, hey, that'd be kind of fun here in Canada too. And if you've got the kind of depth, I mean, as we do on, on the men's side, certainly with three guys inside the top 30, Vashik, who really should be in the top 50 the way he's playing. And, and on the women's side, it's developing there too with Bianca and Layla Annie. And that'd be kind of neat, even if you've got a couple who kind of stand out as the clear favorites kind of fun to get the whole gang together and have something like that and just make it a bit of a celebration about your, your tennis in your country. And, um, and, and the second uh, item to me, again, watching Andy Murray closely and uh, he lost a couple of of close ones there in uh, match tie breaks, I believe. But uh, I just wonder how much fans and, and other people can really expect from Andy Murray in terms of what he'll be able to do when professional tennis resumes. He's been through so much, even after the hip surgery and that, remarkable comeback he was struggling with the the pelvic injury earlier this year he couldn't play his last battle of the brits match because of a a shin issue that he was having which i don't think was serious but i'm just saying you know his body has obviously been through a whole lot he's 33 but you know probably playing older than that and he's only played in two slams the past three years so you get back to best of five setting especially how much left is he gonna have to uh, to really offer in, in that sense yeah, I, I don't have the belief that his body is built to hang, handle the rigors of a 52-week calendar of ATP. I wonder if maybe a smart decision for him would be to slowly make a full transition to doubles if he wants to play for a couple more years. Because we did yeah. see him on the doubles court a little bit uh, sort of late last year and the kind of beginning of this season, I believe, as, as well. And uh, he's he's a very crafty doubles player. Like, he can handle his own. Of course, his brother has had so much success in doubles. Maybe that could be a type of transition for him. And we've seen players go from singles to doubles and become great champions. I'm not saying that's necessarily in his future. And knowing his competitive drive, I, I know he would have the itch to like get back into singles achieve great things um it's just hard to picture him holding up for a calendar season playing four grand slams in a year i I just can't see that being feasible you know you know what boris becker did towards the end of his career in the late 90s is he kept playing for the last couple years but not playing the grand slams so he would only play in other tournaments that were best of three and even for a guy that had won wimbledon multiple times and obviously loved playing there he stayed away from the four slams up until he decided, I believe it was 1999, yeah, he was going to play Wimbledon for the last time, and that's where he wanted to retire. But uh, there was a stretch where his career continued, but not in a best-of-five format. Now, we haven't really seen that since, to the best of my knowledge, and I wouldn't expect Andy to, uh, to continue to, to play if he couldn't contend uh, and, and participate in those majors that he loves so much and has always done so well at making the finals of at least all four of them. Um, but, uh, yeah, an interesting proposition if he wants to continue his career and, and can't really handle the best of five, would he consider that? Would, would players consider that? Uh, I guess it depends on love of the sport and, and how they want to go out. Um, but, uh, I'd, I'd love to see him go out at least fighting and getting through these events, uh, you know, on his own two feet and, and we'll see. He's very excited about the U S open. So hopefully, um, he'll be good to go in, uh, in a few weeks time. 
Yeah, that's the hope. And he's certainly not short on love of the sport. We know his passion and drive uh, when he is on court. Um, you have been listening to Matchpoint Canada, and it was great to get another fantastic guest this week, Patrick Moradigly. So hopefully you enjoyed it. Before we should go, we should note next week we have another fantastic guest. Yeah, former French Open women's finalist, uh, top five in singles, number one player in doubles from uh, the Czech Republic, Lucy Safarova, who joined us recently, and she will uh, come on the podcast to talk about her career, what she's making of tennis nowadays from afar as she's uh, at home with uh, her husband and uh, young child, and uh, really uh, another fantastic guest that uh, I'm really excited to share with our listeners. Yeah, that will be terrific. You've been listening to Matchpoint Canada. We will talk to you next time.